Welcome back to part two of our chat with Efana Koku here on the official Wimbledon podcast. I'm Aaron Paul. Mikey T from Radio WDON has also kindly joined me to add some statistical knowledge into the conversation. So let's get straight back into it. Shall we ask some questions from mm. fans? Yeah, thank you to everyone who's got in touch via social media and has emailed us. Let's go straight to a question uh, from Ray, who asked simply, who's the best strike partner you played with whilst at Wimbledon? And there's plenty to choose from, as you said. Joe loved a striker. God, who's the best? It's a tough one, actually, because sometimes the, the your your best uh, teammates or best player you played with or best strike partner, as is the case here, is not always the one that actually complements you well enough. See, Gailey and I did a lot of things in a very similar way. We were different in one or two things. Um, so it was like, okay, well, he can do things on the left side or right side, sometimes left coming in from the left foot, coming right and right from the left. But I thought we were quite similar. I'm not sure that we complimented, complimented each other as well as modern-day uh, partnerships would do or have done since. So probably playing with Dean Holdsworth would probably be a better fit, but I think Ellie was a better partner for me. Or was that we did more damage in the same side, so I suppose Gailey would be the would be my number one choice. In terms of being complimentary, star-wise, probably uh, a much younger Mick Harford would have been a much better fit for me in terms of in terms of how I like to play. I think of how a lot of teams, lots of teams set up. Then he would have been much more similar in star to Chris Sutton. So I mean, that would be nice to play with Mick when he was, I say, sort of like eight or nine years younger. Coxie has asked you a mm. question. I know you replied on social media, but come on, you've got to do better than this. What was your initiation? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have one, and that's the truth. I didn't have one. I don't know. Maybe thought maybe the lads thought that they couldn't give a record signing one. I suppose. I never, to be honest, I never even thought about it. I knew that they used to that they used to give it to new recruits, but I don't know whether they ever talked about it or whatever. Did you they know. not try? No, 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 no. I didn't have one, and I went there when it was still. It was. It was sort of dying out, to be honest, anyway. Because I remember some players came after me and they didn't have one. I don't remember John Goodman having one. Kenny Cunningham, Leonardson, or even Leonardson never had one. And any other players after that. So I think maybe the lads just thought, you know what, I think we've grown out of that. Enough's enough. But John Harton had one when he came. The lads planned a few of them. I wasn't involved. They cut up his clothes, I think. I can't remember who was involved with that. Then John was changing next to me at the training ground. And someone set fire to his gear. Anyway... You know how the tabloids and the press love to twist things around. So there was a little fire going on in the training ground. And I thought, well, and everybody left. I thought, this is going to burn down loads of players' clothes. And I thought, and the first players' clothes are going to get burned. are going to be mine because he was chaining next to me. So I thought, I'm not having this. So I got his clothes, opened the window. We had some bars on the outside of the window. started to throw them out of the window. Got a stick and put them out the window. Then I got the fire extinguisher, started extinguishing them. Some members of the press, if we can call them that members, were then outside with a, you know some photographers because that was John's first day. He obviously was record signing and seven and a half million or whatever it was. They then see me getting John's clothes and putting them out the window with a fine thing. I thought, and, <laughs> and the headline in one of the papers or the sport from the sport and sports uh, sections or whatever next day is a funny Koku Burns rivals John Hartson's clothes. I thought, see oh, how they twist no. things. Yeah. <laughs> see how they twist things. You're just trying to do a good deed. Yeah, I was trying to do a good deed and save the training ground and save my clothes first and foremost. <laughs> And they've got, you know, so I'm trying to intimidate John Harton by burning his clothes. It's absolute, absolute rubbish. But that's the story that they print. So, so that's how they work. You know, anything to get a, what they call is a bit of a scoop. That, but it was total nonsense. Still on Sky Sports Premier League years. Is if, it? You, if you go and watch it, <laughs> yeah, it, it still yeah, pops up. Yeah. That. So, so that's the truth. I was getting rid of the, of the burning clothes. But obviously, I was afraid that John Harton was going to take my place. So I thought, let me see what I can do to intimidate him. First of all, I'll burn his clothes, really. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> so fair to say the, kind of, the tomfoolery and the individual pranks were still carrying on, but as you say, things like the initiation were gradually taking a bit more of a backseat. The yeah, they're gone. So uh, that was what they did to John, but John knew a few of the players already. He was good friends with Mick Harford because he was good friends with Vinny. He was uh, in the international squad of friends with, with Kerry Hughes. He knew that he was coming. He came with a spare set of clothes. He knew it was it was happening, and that was it. What, what happened, to John Hartson here? Why why did it just not work? It was a bit of a strange sort of signing at the time. Um, I remember obviously when, when obviously when the, the size of the fee, I think was the first thing that after everyone particularly gobsmacked. I mean, we knew he was a you know a quality striker, having you know, with Luton and then from Arsenal and scored goals you know against us at times for for, for West Ham. 
Um, and it just raised one or two um, eyebrows. I don't know whether he perhaps was struggling with his maybe maybe fitness or maybe just fitting in or maybe just going through one of those sort of you know barren patches. That I think sometimes all the best strikers will sometimes um, go through. And in the end, it took him I think more or less three months to kind of get his first goal at Salhurst against Newcastle, and then scored the following week as well. And of course, gave us that moment of euphoria against um, Aston Villa in the penultimate Premier League game when he got that late equaliser, and then. Set us up for that emotional roller coaster, shall we say, at Southampton the following week. So he certainly showed flashes of um, of quality, but again, for some reason, it just didn't seem the right fit for the club. And again, it was, it was the, the the fee, and again, something that had way exceeded anything that Wimbledon had outlaid previously. Mm. Um, and I think maybe exacerbated slightly by the fact it maybe took a while to get his first goal. And um, whilst I'm sure he was you know, a big character, maybe in the, the change room, off wasn't there. I can't say for sure, but. Um, yeah, it was one of those where we, you know, you could turn up here now on a match day, and he would be, you know, mobbed, and you know, everyone would, just, you know, give him love, like what would happen with, uh, with Effen as well if he if he turned up. Um, but yeah, certainly an interesting time, and maybe if he hit the ground running straight away, of course, it could have been a different uh, killer fish. But he seemed to have t- took a while, maybe maybe one or two injury issues in the background. But yeah, I think <laughs> when we had seven and a half million, I think uh, whatever we were doing, it's like the you remember where you were when when Kennedy was shot or whatever, and you remember where you were when you heard that John Hartson was joining for. Seven and a half million, but I mean that was sort of the era when it had gone up quite a lot. The, the sort of the transfer fees, and I think Collymore fairly recently had joined Liverpool for what, eight and a half million, and the fees were gradually creeping up to sort of double figures of million pounds. But uh, but certainly a great player and one who's John and who will always be he'll be great affection and always be welcome here. We won't have to pay for his half time uh, cup of tea and uh, and plate of hobnobs. Nick Oss, you, you were a key part of the team that reached the two semi-finals and was also challenging for Europe via the league for the most of the 1996-1997 mm. season. What do you think made the team so successful that year? There's not one thing actually that I could say that would or, or that comes to mind. I do remember that we went into that uh, the beginning of that season. We'd gone to Norway as we had done a, a few times before. A couple of weeks before the first game we played Man United the first game at home we lost 3-0 I got injured I remember about 10-12 days before the first game and just slightly tweaked my ankle ligaments then didn't train again until about a week before the Man United game so I was on the bench but we lost 3-0 anyway Beckham scored that goal from halfway line and we got completely outplayed there with the champions at the time you know, no disgrace in that and then we went to Newcastle lost 1-0 I didn't travel I worked on my fitness back home and then we came back and uh, what was the next game after that hold Leeds. on Leeds, we lost 1-0. Lee Sharp scored. I played in that game away. So we played three games, no goals. But the I didn't go to Newcastle game, but I'll say that we played quite well. And no reasons, you know, to believe that it, it wasn't a case. You know, we, we weren't a team of fakers in that regard. So if that's what they said, then I believe them. And then I was there. I played in the Leeds game. I know we played quite well. And they got a great goal. That was it. But there was nothing between the two sides. Leeds had some very good plays at the time. And I just thought, you know, we've been here before. And so, as I said, three games, no goals. And then the press starts right, and oh, this is the reason that women are going to go down, you know. And you know they haven't got this, they haven't got that, and it's finally time. And a lot of them wanted us, you know, to be relegated. Let's be honest, you know, they didn't like Wimbledon, whatever, unfashionable, that kind of stuff, which you guys know about. Um, and then you just need to keep working hard, you know. No point feeling sorry for yourself and thinking, well, you know, mo- mo- moan and groan and complain about this decision and that decision. And then we played Tottenham on a, on a Tuesday night, I think it was. We won one 0 Robbie Earle scored. We scored quite early in the game, can't remember exactly when. And then we hung on and they battered us for long periods of the game. But we just hung on and hung on. We never looked like scoring again. I know he was in goal at the time. Neil Sullivan was probably in goal and he made a couple of good scaves. And we hung on and we hung on just through sheer will and perseverance. And Vinny being sent off as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's Russell right. Yeah. Darren Anderton. He got sent off and, and we were very good at hanging in and, pl- and winning when we weren't playing well. And that was probably the key is that we played quite a few games that season. And indeed, a couple of seasons before, where we played quite well, we not played well, hung in. So there was that mental toughness in the group. And then after that, we just flew. I don't know what happened, honestly. You know, we beat Everton that weekend 4 0. I mean, three so months. Three and a half you months didn't lose a game between September and December, yeah. which is quite an amazing run. That's how good we were at the time. Some you know. brilliant wins in there. To be fair, apart from the Man United game where we didn't play particularly well, things just didn't click. But the other games, you know, even though we lost at Newcastle, that wasn't there. The last day we played quite well. Uh, so there was no despondency at the training ground. And the lads were very good at picking themselves up. Even when we lost, we never had those massive lows after a defeat. We didn't. We, people didn't get too excited after we won. You know, players had been around a bit already. 
So all of a sudden, yeah, you know, you win a game and then you win two games, you start to believe in yourself. And then when you win three, four, five, that's no fluke. Then you win six and you win seven. Then you go, and then we drew up Middlesbrough. That was the first game we'd drawn for a while. And I always think that we drew that game because Joe wasn't brave enough. Because we scored, we were on top, then they equalised. No, it might be nil-nil. Yeah, it was nil-nil. Nil-nil, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, we were always... But but they bombarded us for about... And Joe panicked a little bit, from what I remember. I'm thinking, hold on a minute, we just won seven games on a bounce. That storm will blow out and we'll win the game, is what I thought. Anyway, Joe made a few substitutions and it just took it in, in position. In the end, we were cautious and just held on for a draw. But it got to about 10 to 12 games and, you know, know how it felt if you're playing for... Liverpool or Man United or Man City or one of the other big clubs where they go for 25 games unbeaten because you feel you feel absolutely invincible. You know, you come into the dressing room, you feel great about yourself, you feel great about everybody around you. You know that it's going to take a monumental effort from another group of players, you know, to beat you. And you know that if you don't play well, you can still win. And at worst, you can get a draw. And that's how it felt all the way through September, October, November and all the way. And even after we lost to Aston Villa 5-0, it still felt like there's not many teams that that can that can beat us right now. God, at that point, Lord Reed must have been doing concerts well, for you guys. You know when you've been on a good run of form, and the club then brings out a video to commemorate it. There's these seven deadly wins they brought out because we won seven <laughs> in a row. So that, 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 I've that, not that, seen that. Do you still have it? That, huh? still have it? Seven deadly oh, wins. <laughs> get your copy. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. Get your bootleg copy. Somewhere. I don't need a VHS. I need it on little. You know. <laughs> we'll get you on something on disc. Um, Tim Lloyd has asked, "What was?" Efan's favourite goal for us I remember a couple of cracking solo goals versus Chelsea and away at Spurs that's the one that comes to mind actually because I've got a few Spurs friends I love to wind them up it's great you know <laughs> um, yeah we won 3-1 I scored two one with the left foot went past a couple of players and smashed one past Ian Walker that's one of my favourite all time actually the, yeah. the old lane's a really strange place because on camera the angle made it look huge when you got in there it was quite tight and intimidating yeah pitch was quite close or the stands were quite close to yeah, the run off yeah, to, to the pitch yeah um, it was always a place that I like to go and play at Tottenham I used to love going to Highbury as well um, and we, we had a pretty good record against the London teams from what I, re- I remember I used to like playing against you know, the London teams I, I think I scored, scored quite a few against Chelsea, Arsenal Tottenham and West Ham so there were games that I look forward to because they're derbies, aren't they? And Wimbledon were always seen as a small fry, but we just showed them that you know we weren't. Uh, Russell's asked what your best career goal was. The fourth one against Everton, I think, is my favourite. Is that when you flicked it over the defender and ran yeah, through and went round um, the keeper? That's probably my favourite. I think that was one where you you feel as if everything is in slow motion, even at the time. Time stands still. Yeah, because you're in control of of every facet of of yourself and what's around you so I could see and feel everything and um, I don't know what you, I don't know what the great players in modern football think I suppose they got loads of moments like that where they you know someone would write oh yeah I remember that and it does he, it's like a pure strike you you hit the ball so cleanly that you don't feel it and uh, and that was one of those goals where everything just moved in sync and it just felt good at the time uh, and when I've seen it back a few times, I sort of can remember the feeling, which I can't for most. But that's one of them where I can remember the whole feel of everything. The Womble Underground Press, shout out WAP, have asked, uh, did Efan like the song slash chants the fans had for him? And how many Fs in Efan? I don't really know what fans used to sing. You know, you never. I think your family sort of used to take notice more of what they used to sing about you, but it, it never really registered. Really, to, to, to be honest. Yeah, again. And there is only one F in F, fan, by the yeah. way. Of course. <laughs> yeah. We know that. If it was today, you'd get the heartbeat. F and F and a Koku runs so, down. Yeah, the yeah some of the F new ones Koku. are great, aren't they? You know, I think my favourite is actually the, uh, is the Decanio one that the Celtic fans used to chant. That's a great one. Go on. The Icania from the old very song. Good. Yeah, That's a good one. Good. And. Um, and the Nazri one as well that the Arsenal fans used to sing. What's that, man? You know, no, 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 no,
The chief would have been disappointed. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, would not have been happy, my dad. Uh, elsewhere, and Jerry says, your brother was an international discus thrower. What athletic discipline were you good at? Yeah, Abby was a champions, British champion discus and shot as well, I think, yeah. Um, and played rugby league. Won a league title with Bradford Bulls. Abby played rugby league and rugby union as well. So, yeah, it's great across all sports. Me, track and... F- um, I was a good hurler when I was a kid, good long jump. I was Merseyside under-16 long jump champion or age-16 long jump champion, 1983, whatever that was. Um, I was a good sprinter as well. Um, yeah, so they were my, you know, to jump, to hurdle and to sprint were my three. If you weren't a footballer, what would you be? That is a question, isn't it? I had some interesting answers, believe me. I've asked yeah. a lot of footballers and they are some fascinating answers. I honestly do not know. I really can't say. I've never given it much thought because it's... As I was saying earlier, you think about stuff when you're a kid and what you'd like to do. If you get the opportunity, are you blessed to be able to follow that? I wouldn't even call it a dream, to be honest. It just is what I always did. I played sport. I was always running. I was always jumping. I was always playing rugby. I was playing football. Uh, I was always, we used to box at home as kids, myself and my three brothers. So going into a sporting life is, well, okay, what else do I do? That kind of stuff. So I've never seriously thought about doing anything else. Never given me. I've never given much thought as to what I would have done if I'd not, because it it almost never. It was never a reality for me. Thinking about I'm going to have to do something else because I just was going that way. Were your family proud of you being a footballer? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah, my dad certainly was. That's playing for England. Even if I was even even if someone was talking about me playing for close for England or. I was aware that was a possibility, even if I'd been asked. Also, my dad would have been extremely disappointed. So playing for Nigeria was, it was, a, it was even a, it, 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 it was a great thing, you know, for him actually, because I could see the pride on his face. You know, first time I played, he was there, um, '94, and um, all the subsequent matches afterwards, and how he basked in the in the glow of that up until. Time he passed away, so yeah, he was he was he was super proud um, because he never he never thought it could happen. He didn't want me to play football when I was younger. What did he want you to do? Get a proper job, make sure that education was first, and to be qualified, whatever it was, to be a accountant, doctor, lawyer, architect, engineer, because football is too precarious. It still is now because you know you, you could be on a ten million a year contract as a 18 year old you you could break your leg the following day after signing that yes you got the money for the deal for the remaining four or five years but that's it you finish if you got a, a compound fraction you, you can never play you can only ever kick a ball about with your mates then that's you finish but you know that's a gamble like most young sportsmen and women are willing to take that that period playing for Nigeria as well was fantastic because that's still we've won the we've won the Nations Cup once since then since 94 in 2000 13 or 15, cool. I'd be in trouble if I don't remember that. Um, but still, my group, my era, my group of players are still fondly regarded, even more fondly regarded than the team that first won it in 1980 on home soil because that was the area where European football even more, especially Premier League football, was becoming more and more watched, more and more famous on the continent, Nigeria in particular, as being the most populous nation. So that team, you know, my myself and my, my teammates, that group between 93 and 98, 99 are still... The ones who were sort of were still lauded more than anyone else. That's just we're fortunate, you know, to be part of that group. Obviously, going to the first World Cup as well, you know, that made it extra special. And there was success, wasn't there, at the Olympics? I think at an ninety-six, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it was a good time to be involved with the Super Eagles. Yeah, some fantastic players in that squad, though, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah just a few, just a few. Yeah. Genuinely, some of the the, the maddest names when, mm. when when you think about it. Um, you, you don't really mention your mum. Obviously, we talk about the chief, but but um, whilst the chief wanted you to to go and explore other avenues, what was your mum saying? My mum was the same. Oh, okay. Yeah, my mum was the same. You know that that generation of parents generally wanted a sport was were great, but it was never seen as a career because of the precarious nature, as I said earlier. And they always felt as if you needed a backup option. Even up until my late 20s, my mum was saying, I think you should be using your extra time to go back to, to school and to make sure you've got <laughs> a diploma or a degree or do something. 
<laughs> say, Mom, leave me alone. <laughs> do, do but she was right in a way. You know, she was right because you never know. And then you've always got something that you can fall back on. But by then, I was like too far gone in terms of I was already into it. Then I finished playing and I was into the media broadcasting, doing stuff straight away. Um, so she stopped shortly after that. I don't know, probably when I was about 38 or 40. You know, she stopped saying, I think you need to get a proper job. Can your children talk to you about your career? Yeah, not much, no. No, my kids are not uh, sporty, so they've never, they've been aware of it, you know, ever since they've been born. But because it's something that they're not into, they've never, I think as, as they get older, they'll probably inquire more. Or as they get children of their own, if that's their choice, then perhaps because it will be then something for their kids to talk about what granddad did what their great uncle did what all that kind of stuff you know so i think that and then that will reignite or ignite an interest in them i'm sure i hope tom has asked about your favorite wimbledon kit we've got some fantastic examples on the table uh, a match worn shirt as well but what was your favorite wimbledon shirt to play in the later Wimbledon, uh, so later Wimbledon, the one that i wore probably i don't know one of the ones we got here it's about 96 that's um Ninety-seven. That was a lotto when it covered two seasons, ninety-seven through to ninety-nine. Yeah, I think that's the. That's probably my preferred one. Very cool kit, isn't it? The other one I thought was a bit ropey. <laughs> <laughs> but I just for something I like the feel of that one better. I think it looks better when I see old clips. I mean, they're not exactly weren't exactly uh, figure hogging, were they? You know, not like, you know a lot of them were baggy and horrible. But it's what's inside that's most important, isn't it? Isn't Absolutely. that what they say? Very strange one again. Is it true that at Norwich City you nicked a kid's wagon wheel? Yeah, that was what I saw that on, on X a few days ago and I thought, I've no idea what that's about. No? Um, so I told them no. Cannot be the case if it was um, a Mars bar perhaps. I was fond of Mars bars <laughs> when I was younger. Uh, what was my favourite treat or sweet when I was younger? Wagon wheels? No. Did weren't weren't a thing for me. Didn't happen. Mm. Let's let's just look at the, the latter stages of your, your, your time here at Wimbledon. What went wrong at the end? Cool. What went wrong? You know, sometimes just it's it's time to move on. When you get an opportunity to leave, because when you get the opportunity, you know, to move on, you you feel like you served the club well, you've had a good time. Uh, other people are leaving. You know, you get a good offer to go. The club gets a good offer, I think, to go. Club turned down a few decent bids, I know. Um, so I felt in that regard, I was. I don't think Sam was fair to. Fair. I know that he wasn't fair at all. And. I'm, I'm not sure what, what what his game was there. I think Southampton offered three and something million. Millsborough were interested. Blackburn offered three odd million. No, maybe a bit less than that. Sam was holding out for a lot more. I thought that was unjust, considering the good service that I'd given to the club. So yeah, so I was rightly not a very happy man at the time. How did you end up going from three and a half million potentially to Southampton? To ending up at Grasshopper Zurich, uh, did you just want to get out in the end? Yeah, I did. Not to go just to anywhere, you know, because I still felt I could have played in the Premier League, which I know I could have done. So Roy Hodgson was Blackburn manager at the time, and so at the beginning of ninety nine two thousand season, there was a benefit game for Nelson Mandela in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. So by this time. Um, Gil Olsen was in charge so that was an interesting experience briefly the first couple of weeks of pre-season I'd, I'd had an operation actually knee operation the back end of the season before and as usual I would always be fighting to get back fit and play as quickly as possible and sometimes be training and playing when I shouldn't be because I used to love being I used to love training I still do I still love training but you know I used to love it even more then you know as a you know being, especially with a group in a group so training and playing and, you know, so you do yourself a disservice really because people then see you training expect you to be at a level and, you know, and you're not, I don't know, anyway, I'm not sure what happened. Anyway, I knew that I wasn't, or sh- shouldn't have been back involved. Anyway, things didn't go well early on in, in pre-season. I wasn't really fit to play, to be honest. And then I had a discussion with him, a very brief one, could see that I need to move on. You know, I've been trying to leave for about a year anyway. Um, you weren't having the Wellington books, were you? <laughs> no. No, I don't think any of the lads were, to be honest. But I mean, that was that was just his fashion accessory. Let's put it that way. So I'm not going to criticise him for how he was dressing, but um, how he potentially was going to manage the club and the players was wasn't going to 
sit well with me. Why did it not work out for him? Because he came with a reputation. He, he had a reputation. Obviously, look, we, we know what was going on behind the scenes in terms of players being sold figures and, yeah. and money going into places. Like obviously, we can't say things because of legal reasons and I don't want to wind the club up into difficulty all this all mm. these years later. But what happened? Why why was it so bad, Mikey? Well, just thinking back to the time, I mean, when he joined uh, Egil Olsen in the summer of... Um, um, 1999. It was just over a year since he'd inflicted Brazil's first group stage defeat for 32 years as Norway manager. Um, and I think the problem was when he uh, came to us. I think he was a big, uh, you know, exponent of um, or a disciple of the zonal marking system. But as soon became apparent, you know, zones don't score goals against you. Opposing players do. Um, and then it just sort of we started off quite well. The opening day win at Watford. Um, and then um, it just sort of kind of went sort of gradually downhill from there. Second half of the season, particularly the run of form was particularly um, ghastly. Um, and I think um, I think the general consensus. I mean, I think I've heard Jason Yule speaking about it occasionally. Is that he think he came in and tried to change too much? I mean, say for example, Bobby Gould. He'd followed the example of Dave Bassett. Came in as, as he said in one of the documentaries. A couple of little tweaks, tweaks here and there, but don't come in and you know don't try and you know reinvent the wheel. Um, and I think that was probably a big part of uh, Eggle's downfall. And then obviously he went with a couple of games still to go, by which time the writing was pretty much on the wall, despite the little little bit of hope we had against Aston Villa in the penultimate match. But um, yeah, just someone who wasn't really, despite them having the CV that you would have thought would have corresponded with how Wimbledon would have wanted to play and the ethos that they built up over the years that just didn't really work out. But I don't think his record in Norwegian football was actually that good anyway. It was great with the national team, but that's the national team. And a couple of Norwegian players who... Certainly with, or even Leonardson, who was a teammate here. And then later on with uh, Tron Solford, who was a teammate of mine at Sheffield Wednesday. They loved playing for the national team. They didn't particularly enjoy his coaching or the way they played. In fact, I know they didn't, and that's what they told me. But it was a national team, and you just go with what the head coach of the national team is doing. And um, so translating that from England, uh, from Norway to English football, Norwegian to English football, is not that easy, of course. And then, as Mike said, you have to manage things correctly and tweak a few things and you know appreciate what people have done at the football club decide the ones who you can perhaps get a little bit more out of some you need to move on obviously that's always the case um, and then try and slowly evolve things so if you're coming in and trying to drastically chop and slice and dice things and move on you know you, you need to make sure that you win win enough games to start with um, but certainly I think he took a instant um, or made a few decisions around some things very, very quickly. He seems to have made a decision about me without even seeing me train, to be honest. So, yeah, fair enough. I said, well, did, did the atmosphere around that. the club change, though, when Sam left? Because w when Sam was there, it just seemed to be this... It seemed to be a bit of more of a happy place, a jovial happy place, mm. somewhere where everyone got on, sort of a band of brothers. But, but with the Norwegians, straight away, everything felt very corporate and we must make this work as a, a business venture. I don't know if they maybe felt stitched up and maybe they felt they bought, uh, they'd realised they bought a club that didn't have a stadium and, and didn't have X, Y and Z. Maybe maybe they felt that they'd been sold a bit of a dream, but did I it, don't know did about it feel that. different for you guys? Well, Sam was sort of still, I'm not sure when the official takeover was. Uh, no, summer of 97, I think, or thereabouts. Oh, was it? Okay. Oh, that early, was it? All right, okay. Yeah, I thought it was a bit later than actually. Shares, yeah. yeah, first show. Well, um, no, for a while, I don't think I even saw them. I think I only met them once. Probably that was, I know, probably about 99. I think I'm, I met them bo um, both once and that was it. It was like... much sight of them as fans. Anyway. Yeah, didn't see them. I had yachts yeah. and what have you who were doing, doing the rounds around various waters. We had no connection with them. I had no connection with them. If I'd walked past them, you know, the day before, I wouldn't recognise them. In fact, if I walked past them two days after I met them, I wouldn't recognise them because they never made much of an impact. It didn't seem they made much of an impression or, you know, addressed all the players. There was certainly no address from what I recall that season before. I left, and uh, as I said, yeah, you know, so Roy Hodgson was in charge of this game, in uh, charge of the um, African group of players. So I just got, I've been training a few weeks, and I had a little fallout with Eggie Olsen, and um, Roy, Roy was trying to sign me because he'd gone to Grasshoppers by then. Mm -hmm. He left Blackburn, um, so he invited me out for the game. So I sorted out. I got permission from the club to go. I went and played. Was there four or five days. I came back, and then a few days later, my agent said, "Listen, I've uh, I've been in touch with Roy Hodgson, and we'd love to bring you over to uh, Switzerland." That was in the last year of my contract then at Wimbledon. My first choice was to stay here and see if I could get get a move to another 
Premier League club, but the club was still making it quite difficult. I think Stan was still pulling the strings in terms of who was coming and going. I'm sure he was. Um, so eventually, you know, he decided that I was going to be able to go. Otherwise, I don't know, maybe I would have sat out and played a year. No, you know, for, for me to sit out and, and not play and just, uh, I'd be picking up my money. Anyone who knows me, I, I could never have done that. So, so, so that would have been a terrible year. You know, if that was the case, because I was 32 by then or whatever, nearly 32, so I couldn't imagine a year of not playing. I mean, you know, for some people, you know, that's fine, but even at 22, I couldn't have envisaged that. And uh, yeah, so the deal was done and, and I was off. So yeah, I'd left not in a good way, but in truth, the season before was a little bit like that anyway. Because did, it, did it hurt you? Did it disappoint you? It annoyed me, the Sam's behaviour. Um, he could have got more money a year earlier or so. I don't know whether he was, obviously, you know, he was, he, he had a contract. As he said, he was going to, he was going to hold me to it. But in the end, um, all he did was, was alienate me and then make, make less money for himself in that regard. But, you know, there's nothing that I could do about that. And um, if I was 22 or something, it, it would have been different because he would have either given me a much better contract than he was offering me or whatever or he would have taken whatever money you know that he could have done at the time uh, so yeah that no I mean then obviously you know so sometimes the reaction of a few of the fans as well you know because they which was the, actually the previous or well, a year earlier uh, because I don't know a game or two where I came on or something or my name was read out and a few fans you know were booing me so I was about oh, really okay all right well that was always the minority so that didn't concern me too much um, but then, you know, the fans never know the true picture. So they'll only usually hear one narrative. So I don't blame players then, or or certainly not now, for making sure that they that they get their they get their point of view across. You know, like Jaden Sancho from Man United mm-hmm. a few days ago, the manager says something in a press conference. He immediately responds on social media. I actually think that you know that you know that that he did the right thing. If the manager's got anything to say to him, say it face to face. Then, it, if you want to say it afterwards in the press conference, fine. But at least the player knows, um, so you make sure that you can also actually say it because the club is saying something really that they should be talking with you privately. Then, if, as I said, if you want to mention it in the press or whatever, um, so there was no right to reply then, unless you went through a journalist. That was the only way. And if you were close to a journalist, fine, then you could get your version out, but. I wasn't. I was never. I was never playing that game. Um, or you get an agent who would call a journalist or would, you know, say this or s- say that on your behalf. So that was something that you had to. You sort of had to accept, to a large extent. And anyway, you know, you just had to do what you, you did on the pit on on the pitch. So the only way to put that out back in your mind was to play, and to score. I I can't remember how many games I played that season. Uh, I got injured. I remember towards the end of October or November then missed a few months had an operation in January didn't really play much again until the end of the season played the last few games because um, I was desperate to try and get back in the Nigeria squad for the World Cup squad you know World Cup but I didn't manage that so yeah so that was a frustrating season um, but I remember the beginning of that season before I scored a goal at West Ham where we came up from 3-0 down and 1-4-3 and I scored the winner off the bench so that was arguably my most satisfying goal at Wimbledon or indeed that I ever scored because it was it was saying to the fans well you sort of you sort of forgotten what I've been doing here you know you know for five years so that was the only time where I jumped up and like sort of pointed to the shirt on my name on the back I'd never done that before but that was an instant reaction you know to some of the boo boys who were probably now cheering but that's football isn't it I always look to Mikey T when someone mentions a goal because <laughs> he knows he knows it. I mean, you probably remember it. Well, yeah, 9th of September, 98, Wednesday night, Upton Park, 3-0 down in 26 minutes with, I think, Ian Wright and John Hartson, who then joined us, of course, you know, a few months later. And then um, I think it was uh, Marcus Gale, before half-time had come along, back to 3-1, then Ewell, then Gale. And then, uh, there was a Keith Houchin-esque diving header from you, Evan Something Wright, like that, yeah. away fans. Mm. And, uh, I think we were, most of us were going back to Upton Park Station afterwards, and most of the time, you know, if you do something like that, you'd sort of 
covered up, put in a tracksuit, whatever. But I think the West Ham fans were just too gobsmacked to comprehend what had happened, and uh, we were going to get home fairly safely considering what had happened. But uh, but yeah, diving as diving headers go, that was uh, that was pretty special. Yeah, you, yeah, that was one of my favourite goals. One of my favourite for different reasons. Like I said, it was it was great to score the winner. It was great to Joe was he was not he was not playing me because of the contract stuff. So by then I sort of knew what was going on. Um, but to be honest, Joe was uh, I suppose he was partly responsible as well. But I knew, like I said, I knew that's how the game worked then. And um, when you get the opportunity, you know, you know, just have to take it. The next questions asked you are they're really tough and and that's because I'm gonna ask you about the demise of Wimbledon Football Club mm. and ask I'm gonna ask you about watching it from afar and watching what happened and, and your thoughts with it. It was sad to see it, although I wasn't here. It was sad to see a few little clips that I saw, um, watching the news from uh, Zurich at the time. It was even sadder to hear it from some of the players that I was talking to because a few of them were already thinking about relative or felt as if they were gonna be relegated this was like October November time that early and that's no lie you know that's that was a feeling that I was getting I came back uh, Christmas 99 I think I might come to a game and there was just a general general apathy around around the whole place so I could see that things weren't looking around obviously a few players have moved on um, you know I still thought that the boys might have been able you know to turn it around at some point until it got to a stage where I thought you know the it appears that the that the die is cast and 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 they're not going to. Then I was a part of it, but I'd imagine that in the in the dressing room that people would have started being looking at each other, as opposed to looking within themselves, which I think is what a lot of us used to do when we were together. Is that people would look at themselves first and in, focus on improving their performance and knowing that you get four or five people who remain strong, mentally strong enough, and then. To drag drag the rest along, and then next week it could be you know the turn of the other four or five players who weren't particularly playing well or feeling great about themselves. So there was nothing I could do about it, and um, it was sad to see it, and it was even sadder for the fans because the players move on. Football fans don't switch clubs, you know. You don't go from supporting AFC to supporting QPR or Chelsea, and now you remain with your club. So that would have been much more difficult, you know, for them, I'm sure, and still is now. Painful and. Could say that it was avoidable. Lots of teams get relegated, and have done. Some have bounced down or gone down and bounced back up. But for a club the size and stature of Wimbledon to come back up is much more, much more difficult. You know, if Ipswich get relegated or have done, end up playing in League One or League Two. You know, they're a much bigger club. Sheffield Wednesday, some of the Newcastle have been relegated. Lots of the you know Aston Villa have been relegated. But they've got great chance. You know that they're only going to fall so far for so often. But for a club, it can lead to the actual demise, which is what happened here. Do you have a favourite eleven, a Wimbledon eleven? Because that was a, one of the questions from the fans. Thought it'd be a bit difficult to put you under that much pressure to, to put together an entire eleven. But I was just wondering, do you have anyone that comes to mind if you were to pick a, a favourite Wimbledon eleven that you played with? Oh, you got me on the spot there. Um, I could probably rattle off a few names. Well, I could well, give you. you know. Would you prefer Wimbledon seven aside, ultimate Wimbledon FC seven aside? No, there's there's no seven aside competitions, are there? You know, Masters. Do you remember Masters football back? Yeah, in the I remember that. I, was great, like, wasn't I, it? I, yeah. I tore my hamstring Brilliant. last time I played that. So oh, no. let's not talk about the Masters. Yeah, I played on a carpet, wasn't it, or something like that? It looked like it. Well, last one I played in was I played at Sheffield Wednesday a few times, and the last one I tore my ruptured my hamstring so badly, much worse than when I was playing. Because you know you're not stretching properly, all that kind of stuff. You come on and off. You get warm. You get cold. Um, yeah, painful. But <laughs> um, eleven aside, I'll, Neil Sullivan in goal, Kenny Cunningham, uh, Alan Kimball left back, all centre halves. Um, I'll probably go with most of the team who played that ninety six, ninety seven season, if not all. So Dean Blackwell and Chris Perry in the middle. Um, so if we're playing am I allowed to be in this team by the way of course of course it's your team good job (laughs) Um, so I'd have Robbie in the middle Vinny was a great personality and a big character and when he wasn't doing something stupid and getting sent off he was an asset Um, otherwise he could be a liability Um, so Robbie and Vinny in the middle 
I'd have Leo actually because Leo was great at getting forward and scoring goals, important goals. Um, so those three. And then myself and Marcus and Michael Hughes. Michael Hughes will be the sole exception. I think we've if we've had Michael Hughes a couple of years earlier, gives us an extra few points in the league and we get to a final of a League Cup, FA Cup. We've got a bit more creativity in Gal. Super intelligent player, great link up play. So longer, you know, play some great games with him. But I was injured quite a lot quite a bit when he was here, but could see he had that little spark of ingenuity. So I think if Hughes had been around two years earlier, we're a much better team. Last question. FM, when I say Wimbledon Football Club to you now in 2023, what do you think of it? For a lot of people, it's hurt. It's sadness. For a lot of people, it's joy. Mm. For a lot of people, it's good times. It's, it's times with, with, with family and parents and people from once upon a time. For me, it's quite emotional because I, when I drive past Plough Lane, the old site, and I see what I can only call the gravestone of Wimbledon Football Club, mm. it's really emotional just thinking about that fantastic football club. You're saying it's hard because it feels a little bit not the same, doesn't it, in a way, from the way you said that? It's it's hard because when you think about what happened, it's like losing it's like losing family. It's like a death. It's I don't think people talk about it. And I think to be honest, if someone was to run a Wimbledon FC counselling session, thousands would turn up. Mm. Yeah. Because even now I sit down and I think about it and I'll sit and I'll watch Premier League years. One of my favourite things to do genuinely is at two in the morning, one in the morning to put on Premier League years to see, oh, 94, 95, brilliant. Yeah. Sit there and you'll see these deep blue kits with a low necks, you know, across mm -hmm. the front and you go, wow, what a club, what a team. You know, Wimbledon. You just answer my question without saying yes. It doesn't feel the same. No matter what you're saying, no matter how much love you feel for the club as it is now, FC Wimbledon, it doesn't feel like Wimbledon Football Club as it was, even though you've not said yes. No, I, I, it's it's emotional. In terms of all the water under the bridge and the dropping seven divisions in one summer, then rebuilding ourselves, mm -hmm. coming back up. So much has happened, I suppose. I know what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I support Liverpool. I have done ever since 1972 or three. Before that, I used to follow my dad's team, Leeds. So I can still remember the Leeds team of the late 60s, early 70s, even when I was a baby, because my dad always talked about them and the first team I knew. So if you ask me to name the Leeds team of 72, 73, I can reel all those names off for you right now. If you ask me to name the Liverpool team of that, yeah, I can't. I can name a few. I'd, I'd be thinking for three, four minutes. I might miss one or two up, but the Leeds team is like that. Just you know, just like that. So I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Leeds. But Liverpool has been my team. So if Liverpool got relegated or were mismanaged, it would never happen to that degree, of course, because they're a giant. And then I would feel it, you know, Liverpool playing local football against Ellesmere Port or, you know, their big rivalry was against Tranmere. Or I'd be thinking, really? You know, so it doesn't mean because Wimbledon are a much smaller club than Liverpool and don't have the history that what happens to Wimbledon is no less important within the community because it's not. I talked earlier about in the programme about football as a fabric of the community. So it does feel like a loss, you know, and I can understand how the fans feel. I felt really disappointed and sad and annoyed and angry at the same time with the way that I left the club, the way that I felt the club was mismanaged, um, stuff that I could see back in 94 when I first arrived, that Sam was very good at brushing over and Mikey talks about some of the stuff with the, the old ground and the way it was done and I've seen and spoken to people in the council just through accident really, oh, you, okay. and they talk about it, they know who you are talk about football and some people who work with Sam the opportunities to do stuff for the training ground for a new ground which was spurned all with an eye on it sounds like I'm I'm digging him out Sam which I am really this is the place to do it if you are yeah because he had opportunities you know to do stuff but if you if you talk a lot of bullshit some people see through it and I could see through you'll get found out one day yeah, but I don't think you know that you know that he really cares. To be honest, he lives in Long Island and, and makes a lot of money, and I don't think he's got or doesn't look back and think I you know that I could have done this and I could have done that because I think he did what he wanted to do. Interesting. Um, I won't go into too much detail because I want to get sued. But um, one or two things that Sam said to me not long after I signed about how he made his money in the in the Middle East, came to England, and he didn't know anything about football and drove past Twickenham Rugby Football st uh, Rugby Stadium one day and thought I'd like to buy that 
the guy who was with said, Tam, this is the HQ of England rugby rugby union. You can't just buy it. So no, no, I can buy that. He had a lot of money in his good. He was young. He was in his pocket, young and brash, and all that kind of stuff. Arranged the meeting to go with the head of the RFU or whatever, and took him. I wanted to buy it, and the guy realised this is a guy, young guy, thinks he knows about, or oh, can just come in and buy, blah blah blah. You know, Twickenham. Explained how it worked, all that kind. Of. So Sam said, eventually he realised, well, okay, this guy's looking at me as if I'm just this like a jumped-up little rich young guy from the Middle East, lots of money flashing around and things you can buy. So Sam realized very quickly in the conversation, it's not how things work here. Mm. So basically Sam didn't know anything about sport, it appeared, is what he was saying to me. He didn't know anything about football. Anyway, he got to, he lived in the area, I think, or lived in the area, a friend used to come and say, when you come down to watch my team play, Wimbledon, he went down, he thought it was quite fun. In the end, he got involved, you guys probably know, got involved with the club that how, took over the club, blah, blah, blah. His mind was never on, he wanted to get in, enjoy the ride when he realised there was big money to be made in English football that way he was getting what he could out of the club and like I said legacy is an important thing both from a sport even a sport, sport we're talking about sport here but, you know, so people remember you long after you've gone and you've got this you've got that named after you if that's what you think if that's your thing lots of people chase that in life in sport in life they want the whole stadium after them they want the so and so stand there they want the so and so lounge some people don't give a flying F about that um, but if you are concerned about li um, being remembered in a positive way then and you've got the opportunity to do it you think that you could do it or perhaps you should do it um, if you don't then you're quite right you know people have got the right to throw lots of stick and mud and stones at you so I'm sure over the years you know that Sam's had lots of that you know thrown at him I don't think he can complain and say well I did this I did that because the bottom line is that is that you didn't I always knew it was going to be very hard to build a brand new stadium that costs a lot of money if you're not fully if you're not fully committed to doing that but at least considering his wealth he was in a position for example to okay you know my legacy to Wimbledon Football Club and here in the community will be so and so training ground I don't care if they name it after me but that's going to be there in, in perpetuity for as long as I can 125 years I gifted to all the club has it and I can make some money out of it you know, it doesn't have to be that I don't gain anything from it. Um, so I could see that with Sam. Sam could, could be very open when there weren't too many people around and he maybe let his guard down. Not saying anything that would ever incriminate himself. I'm not saying that, you know, that he did anything wrong. Absolutely not or anything like that. But um, what the fans view as you doing something wrong or you not doing something right is, is what they remember. As I said, there's nothing around a football club that will say that Sam Ham was here. You know, I know it's a new club now, but it's still the old club in a way. Mm. So that's what the fans remember. They'll choose not to remember him because they don't feel like he did right by him. Um, so very few people over the history of Wimbledon Football Club have had the opportunity to do something that people can marvel at or say, this is fantastic. So people now mention Plough Lane in Wimbledon. Your question to me is, what does that mean to me? As a former player, being here at the club through the 90s when the club had high, such a high profile, I say to people when they ask, you know, you talked about the big clubs of that time, you know, obviously the usual Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham and a few others. But outside of that, Wimbledon Football Club used to get as much profile and media attention as anyone else in the country. You know, if you mention Wimbledon, you were talking about early on about the name, Crazy Gang, you know, people talk about it, talk about the players, just that, to go back a little bit here and then the team that won the FA Cup final about the big names there, Fashionu and... Jones and Besson and Wise and all that kind of stuff. So the club was always in the spotlight, which for a club the size of Wimbledon, when you think about it, is incredible, isn't it? You know, well, average crowd of what? Before I arrived at the full club, I don't know, 12,000. When I was here, probably a few more, but that was exaggerated by big crowds against Liverpool and Man United, but on average, probably getting 13,000, 14,000. Ended up just around about 18,000 in the final season, but gradually yeah. as the time went on, it was the composition of that of the away fans did gradually decrease a little yeah. bit more, I think because of local work we did and gave out t tickets and encouraged community initiatives. So the proportion of away fans did decrease, not completely, but just fairly mm. appreciably. But yeah, 18,000, I think, was the final average that we had in the Premier. So it's disappointing to see a club that you played at fall so low. Because when it does, it's a shame for you. It, when the club's doing well, it re reflects well on you as a former player. It does, you know. So people talk to me about Wimbledon all the time. People talk to me about, uh, about Norwich all the time. People don't talk to me about Sheffield Wednesday 
you know, that's a big club than both of them combined, if you like, in a way, yeah. potentially, because I wasn't playing in Premier League football, at, you know, at the time. You know, the, you know, Sheffield Wednesday in the Championship, the couple of years that I played there. So people remember you at your height, if you like, or the the, the biggest profile of the clubs. So as I said, it reflects um, it reflects well in you, and I can get work on the back of, or I could, I could get more work on the back of uh, Wimbledon being in the Premier League. I get more work on the back of that, so that's great for me. I get work on the back of um, when I was a player at Norwich or playing for Nigeria, all that kind of stuff. So there's a knock-on effect, you know, for everybody. So anybody who says, I, I don't really care, maybe they don't. It depends on, on what they view as being quite important in, 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 in life. So it'd be nice if Wimbledon were doing better, but considering where they've been, where they were, where they went to, dropped seven divisions, come back up to where they are now is great. Um, it's a great story that just continues. We back, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We never went away, really. Exactly. Never completely went away because the name was still, the name was still there. This, this is Wimbledon football. Conclusion: the name, isn't it? Uh, Miguel. Yeah, just just one thing for myself, just to round off. And obviously, I'm wishing to steal your thunder there, Aaron, with the no. with the last question. But um, you have another September one. September of 2002. Um, I think you came down to one of the AFC Wimbledon matches. I think I bumped into you in the corridor. It might have been the cup game with. Brimstown Rovers and it was mentioned in the programme that you paid us a visit etc um, I think it may have been after your time at Sheffield Wednesday may have um, come to an end and on the strength of that there was a tiny little whisper going around I don't know how much kind of uh, you know, gravitas it had or potential uh, you know, truth but it, it was mentioned that potentially you were or you've been approached possibly to come and maybe have a stint with uh, come and play for the uh, AFC Wimbledon uh, side <laughs> I don't know how much truth or, uh, or, uh, or substance was there to that particular rumour Oh, you want me to answer that? Uh, no, no, and no, I never, I never, I'm not sure. No, September 2002. I'd not even, I'd not even officially retired then. Yeah, I think yeah. the picture was in the program because I, I remember bumping into you and seeing you at the yeah. game. So yeah, that then, you know, people to put two and two together. And I retired it. that month actually. Yeah. So that was, yeah, I retired that month. I'd, so I'd finished the previous season before and then I was uh, coming out a little injury pre-season at Sheffield Wednesday and I started training again anyway yeah. before as the season kicked off I realised you know what and I was doing a lot of travel my family was back here in London still which probably wasn't a good thing well it wasn't so I just thought you know what stopped enjoying it as much as I used to I used to enjoy training then obviously depends on who you're working yeah. with all that kind of stuff it would be interesting to see they have a crack at North Greenford United and Godalming and Guildford and that would be nice wouldn't it you know? <laughs> these, uh, I started in non-league you know I would have had no problems yeah. going back if that was in my mind but you could know. have gone full circle yeah. yeah could have gone full circle yeah. I, I think we're going to wrap it up there because Efan genuinely it has been an absolute pleasure talking been to good. you and, and good learning fun, yeah. more about you and, and learning more, more about Women and Football Club I mean it's what we're aiming to do here on the, the official club podcast is to bridge that gap between Wimbledon Football Club and, and AFC Wimbledon so thank you so much for joining us here at, at Plough Lane really really appreciate it and, and hopefully we'll see you again soon hopefully yeah I've only only one game I've been imagine all, all these years only one game because whenever I've been invited I've always been working so that League Cup game against Coventry a few weeks ago it was nice to be here we'll and it's I missed the bloody goals, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I Should left early. early, don't leave early. You wouldn't leave the cinema early, would you? No, that's true. Yeah, you know. Things and with that, and you always know what's, well, you usually know what's coming with a film, don't you? Absolutely. You know, sport, eh? That's the real reality TV. Beautiful. Efan, thank you so much. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the official AFC Wimbledon podcast. Wow, what a character Efan is. We'll be back very, very soon with another episode. Until then, here's Bezo. Get every single episode of the official AFC Wimbledon podcast the minute it drops. Just head to Acast, Spotify or Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe. Come on, you dons.